Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The ants are falling into line, the ants are falling into line. They're all ten ants are falling into line. The ants go marching one by one. So this whole thing, it started with ants. That's where we began. We're going to talk today about what we're calling unimaginable numbers. But in fact, I mean, most of them are kind of imaginable. They're just different, difficult, difficult to work with. Uh, You know, people actually don't get the entirety of this Mark Twain quote, right? What he said was, or wrote, was, figures often beguile me particularly when I have the arranging of them myself, in which case the remark attributed to Disraeli would often apply with justice and force. There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Um, Actually, there's, by the way, no proof that Disraeli ever said or wrote that, uh, as is the case with so many oft-repeated quotations. But that's not the point. The point is that there are a lot of ants. J.B.S. Haldane, the British biologist, uh, supposedly was asked at one point if his studies had given him any insight into the mind of God. And, and Haldane allegedly answered, he is extraordinarily fond of beetles. Uh, but he's even more fond of ants, it turns out, maybe. Uh, and here to get us started on that uh, is Sabine uh, Noten, uh, an insect ecologist and a temporary principal investigator at the University of Würzburg. Welcome to our conversation. Hello. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join. So this all began because you and a number of other colleagues were trying to work up an estimate of the number of ants currently inhabiting this planet. Can you just, first of all, say a little bit about what the process would be of trying to come up with a number like that? Well, obviously, we did not set out and count every single ant on the planet because that would have taken us millions of years and we would still be at it. So in the last 100 years or so, there are many, many ant researchers out there and a lot of publications are online nowadays. So we basically went through the Internet and searched for all these publications to get them together Because in these publications, even though they're not interested per se in the number of ants as such, but they're much more interested in biodiversity patterns, species richness pattern, distribution, elevational gradients. And so as a byproduct, the total number of ants were collected and the sampling effort was usually uh, collected. And so we used these studies to compile a global large data set, which can be used to calculate the number of ants in the end, which we did in this study. Right. And so you came up with... 20 quadrillion ants, which I was shocked by. I would have guessed 16 quadrillion at the most. Um, And so, no, this is a number that, you know, to most people just, there's almost no way to to assign any meaning to it. Most of us don't know what a quadrillion is or how it compares to anything else. So what did you do about that to make this number digestible? So it's mind-boggling, right? It's a 20 with 15 zeros. If we would take away or add five zeros, it wouldn't do anything to our imagination. We (laughs) still couldn't grasp it. So what we did is we wanted to compare this 
to something we are more familiar with. And so we basically calculated this number into biomass of dry carbon. So we then could compare the biomass of a number of different taxa and also humans and wild birds and mammals and also other terrestrial arthropods and find out how this scales to each other. And what we could show is that all the ants together on the globe, they weigh 20% of the human biomass. And the humans, we are really a lot of people on this globe. So 20% is already huge. But then we realized, wow, they actually outweigh global ants and wild, uh, global wild mammals and wild birds together. So in the end, that was really mind-boggling because whenever we go out for a walk in the park or somewhere, really easy spotting birds and wild mammals and take a look and appreciate them. But we don't appreciate the ants which are walking on the ground or in the trees, of which there are many more out there than the other taxa we looked at. Right. According to the Washington Post, for every person, there are about 2.5 million ants. See, that I can kind of get. You know, I mean, at least I can sort of think that I, 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 I know what that would mean, because 2.5 million is just a, a, a more manageable number than 20 quadrillion. Indeed, it is. So um, maybe also just explain why... Why is it important to, in fact, make the number digestible? In other words, you've, you come up with this really kind of fascinating uh, way of talking about it in terms of how it compares to the biomass you know, of all kinds of other living things. In some ways, I'm not sure your, your scholarship needs demand that you do that. It's for some other reason, maybe just to try to communicate with ignoramuses like me. <laughs> no, that was actually not at all the case. So producing this mind-boggling number was actually a side effect of this style study. So we were much more interested to find out what the global pattern of the ant abundance is. So at the moment, we have a very good idea about species richness and biodiversity and where in on the globe, in which regions they're particularly high or partic particularly few. But we had very little idea about the abundance of any insect. So then this is what we were actually interested in to know in which kind of areas, biomes are more or less ants. So we found that in tropical areas, for example, there were many more ants than in temperate areas. And similarly in forests or savannas and dry forests were more ants than in their temperate counterparts. And this was very interesting to us actually. So producing that overall number was basically a very interesting side product of the entire study. Well, it is fascinating, and I thank you for taking the time to kind of set up this conversation we're about to have, which is about very, very large numbers. Uh, Sabine Noten is an insect ecologist and a temporary principal investigator at the University of Würzburg. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And now we're going to switch gears a little bit, uh, and we're going to talk to Elizabeth Tumanian, Tumarian, excuse me, uh, the uh, director of the Brainwave Learning Center at the Synapse School and an educational neuroscience researcher at Stanford University. So first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, you know, one of the things that I read while getting ready to talk to you uh, is that on average, the human brain contains about 100 billion neurons and many more uh, neural neuralia, uh, which serve to support and protect the neurons. Each neuron can be connected to up to 10,000 other neurons passing signals to each other via as many as one trillion synapses, which told me that 
my brain can't even understand numbers about itself. Uh, <laughs> that's that's some information about my brain, and my brain's going, I just I don't know what any of that means. And so there's a way in which we're not necessarily set up out of the box to be able to crunch numbers when they get really big. Tell us some more about that. Yeah, I mean, the example you cite, it's very meta, but um, but it's true. I mean, our brains are are not really set up to handle these big numbers, but I think what's really interesting is 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 really thinking about why would we expect that our brains would be good at making sense of these big numbers? You know, in, in terms of 20 quadrillion ants, is it really actually helpful for us to be able to make sense of that and really be able to quantify that? Or is it more important to really just think, well, that's a lot of ants. And um, and I think that's really what our, our brains are um, helping us do is we are working with numbers all the time. And we're really working on a human scale with quantities that we are working with very often and encountering throughout our days. And when you get outside of that human scale, we have much more trouble making sense of those those quantities. Um, and and that's where you see some difficulties coming in. And we say when you say human scale, I, I mean, uh, today in 2023, you know, people are going to tell us how much data the GPT chatbot has to ingest in order to does, do what it does, and it's, it's this huge number. But are you saying that, you know, on the grasslands of Africa, as early Homo sapiens uh, and other hominids, that that we, you know, was sort of like, well, there's, I don't know, there's five, I, there's a bunch of antelope over there. There's fewer than ten. You know that 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 there. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't that many exactly. really big numbers that the human brain had to be able to process in an actionable way. Yeah, I think that's what's interesting about, you know, sort of our modern society is that we have these really precise number words uh, for these large quantities. But our brains are are still are haven't changed that much from that scene that you described. They're they're still evolutionarily very old. And so I think that um, that's that's something worth considering. And that's how scientists are really thinking about. Um, our brains and how we make sense of numbers. And so we're really using the same brain circuitry to make sense of um, numbers and words that we have, you know, not really had to deal with before. We're, we're reusing and recycling these old circuits that um, have really been helping us understand things like, you know, how how much of something do I have in front of me? How fast am I? Is that thing coming towards me? Uh, how much time has passed? These sorts of things. Right. I mean, I will now mention uh, our, our latest great unfinished Charles Ives Symphony, which is a show we've been working on for I don't know how long uh, about Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number is kind of you know kind of what you're talking about, right? That uh, Dunbar posits that the human brain can meaningfully process about 150 human connections, and he can even you know trace that to Neolithic villages and stuff like that. That once it gets bigger than that, there's something else that we have to do that maybe isn't so intrinsic to us. Although you think about that and you think about, I don't know, I've got 5,000 Facebook friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, 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 we're being asked to adapt to different number scales. Absolutely. And our brain is certainly capable of, of uh, making those adaptations. And I think that really also what it does very well is um, use different strategies to make these unimaginable and abstract numbers uh, much more meaningful. And so in the case of your Facebook friends, those are all hopefully, you know, emotional connections or you have some sort of tie and connection to them to really, you can maybe name uh, many of them or, <clears throat> uh, you know, you have some sort of tie. And that's one strategy, certainly for being able to grasp bigger numbers and to be able to conceptualize them. Um, and our brain is certainly capable of, of, 
going beyond just, you know, what's countable. Um, but there are limitations. And we see that in a lot of the psychological research that it's done on how we understand big numbers. So I'm also assuming there's a development developmental issue here. I mean, I don't know, probably Piaget probably wrote something about this, right? When we're infants, there's mama, dada, maybe like two or three other people. But you don't really, there isn't that much to think about. There aren't that many big numbers. Um, and the older we get, the more we have to sort of maybe rewire our circuits a little bit so that we can, you know, we can understand some of the things being flung at us by reality. But do we continue to sort of earn capacity to understand bigger numbers? Yeah, and and this is you know really the the bulk of my research and and what I think is so fascinating is that the, our conception of number and quantity is really developing throughout our lifespan, but there's really rapid development specifically in childhood and in adolescence. And so if you think about childhood, there's a lot to learn about numbers. There's learning number words. There's learning number symbols. These arbitrary symbols that we have to represent quantity. Um, and there's gaining experience with number. So if you've ever made the mistake of asking a young child how old they think you are, you've probably learned that they typically overestimate and they're likely to pick a number word that means a lot, like a hundred. They've heard the word a hundred. They may not have seen or been, they may not be able to count to a hundred, but they know that a hundred is this word that means a lot. And what they're doing is, is using um, this number word as sort of a, a category marker. And, and adults do this as well. But what's really happening from childhood through adulthood is we're building our mental representation of number. And so, um, you know, one prominent theory of how we think about this is on a mental number line that in your mind's eye, when you think about numbers and quantity, that you're representing them on sort of a number line. And this number line uh, appears to be really culturally mediated. So if you if you write from uh, left to right, your writing system goes from left to right, You prob and your, your number system is probably reflecting that, where you have small numbers on the left side of space and large numbers on the right. And when you're in childhood, uh, these numbers are particularly compressed. This number line is, is compressed, logarithmically compressed. And as we get older and we have more experience with number and we're uh, manipulating it more often, this, this goes through a shift where it becomes slightly more linear. Um, but you still see evidence of this sort of logarithmic compression as you get into the larger numbers, uh, you know, for example, talking about millions and billions. So there's definitely this really rapid and very important growth in, in how we think about number, um, and it continues throughout the lifespan. All right. So hang on. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, she's going to be back. Elizabeth Tumarian will be with us uh, in the next segment. We're going to have be joined by another guest and we're going to continue to talk about this sea of numbers that we're swimming in, only some of which we fully understand. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Dan Fogelberg, and he's juking the stats again. Some of these numbers just don't really add up all that well. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, still with us is Elizabeth Tumerian, a director of the Brainwave Learning Center at Synop School and an educational neuroscience researcher at Stanford University. Also at, joining us right now is Shabnam Musavi, a scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and a senior scientist at Sentai Lab in Italy. So, um, Shabnam Musavi, I've got a thing on my phone, an app on my phone. I think it's called Vivino or something. And I can point, yeah. I can point it at a bottle of wine, uh, and it'll tell me whether it's got a 4.1 rating or a 3.8 rating, and it'll tell me probably how much the price is going to be. And so I'm sitting there thinking, wow, should I spend $19 for the 4.2 rating? Because I can get a 3.8 rating <laughs> for only $16. And that's kind of, in microcosm, a lot of the world that we live in these days. Right, we are confronted with a lot of numbers uh, that actually kind of are placeholders for maybe slightly more holistic decisions that we're making. That is absolutely true, and it is the result of us being sharing our decision-making processes with machines these days. And what machines understand is the language of numbers, so we leave it to them and consult them to tell us what is better than what, uh, we have to speak their language. <laughs> are, are, there, are there, I mean, there <laughs> seem to be implicit and inherent risks uh, in living the way that you just described. There are risks and there are also trails. Some people would like to tell you that you're getting lazier and lazier because we rely more and more on what's simpler. I would like to say that uh, in some sense, we have always had this tendency of using our smarts to live easier. Now, um, whether it's risky or not, um, everything has risks. We don't really know what the good thing, whether the good things would outweigh the bad things in the end. But um, if we are enjoying it, I would say, and it doesn't seem to be of consequential uh, 
big time consequence. Uh, uh, I, I mean, paying $19 or $30 for a bottle of wine is probably not a big deal. Um, but when it comes to, for instance, who receives this scholarship or who would be um, uh, my doctor or who would be which school I'm sending my child or who would receive the next huge grant or, or that title that would entitle a person to um, make important decisions about a nation or, or larger than a nation, then these numbers are really risky. So, uh, Elizabeth, I want to come back to you for a second, because I think there's also a way, and we, we kind of hinted at it uh, in the previous segment, in, in which even now human capacity for using numbers and the human desire for numbers kind of lines up a little bit with the human need for numbers. I guess there are some tribes in places like the Amazon where they don't really talk about some of the numbers that we talk about because there's no reason to do it. Is that fair or correct? Yeah, that's right. There's uh, a number of, of uh, indigenous groups that have been studied and, and and to try to understand, like, how are they thinking about number and how is their language shaping that thought or how can we learn about their their conceptions through that language? And so, as you mentioned, in some cases, uh, there isn't really this precision that we uh, tend to use in day to day life and, and even on the smaller ends of things where it's after about five items, it's sort of, well, about 10 or or more than that, or a group or a lot or more than that. And, and that's really the language that's being used. And, and so we have to really think through what does it mean to not have that precision? And so I, I guess another thing that we try to do, and I, I'd like you to both talk a little bit about this, but uh, uh, Shabna, maybe you can get us going, is when we are confronted with these numbers that don't necessarily have an intrinsic or immediate heuristic meaning to us, we try to put them in some kind of context. And I'll give you uh, an example of this uh, here in the U.S. these days. It, it's sort of weird and a little bit macabre, but 9-11 has become sort of a unit of measurement. So when people talk about deaths from COVID-19, it's 400 a day. And then somebody will say, that's a 9-11 every two weeks. Um, and, and there's some debate about whether that's a good way to talk about it or not. But, but I think it's a natural instinct maybe. To, is it to sort of try to find something else that you already know about and that you've assigned a certain emotional or moral value set and to say, it's like this in this way? Absolutely. We understand by attaching meanings. We make meanings and then we attach emotions to them that are not completely explicit in logical terms, but they are very powerful when we make our decisions. Why do, are we afraid of number 13? Why is three a wholesome number? <laughs> Why do we... Um, care whether um, it is in base 10 or base 60, for instance. These can be all considered the same question, where um, the meaning of it comes from some necessity, some need, or as you said, in general, a context. Now, the question about heuristic goes like this. Whether we are even understand, able to understand something without attaching it to something else, to giving it a context. Very few people think in abstract terms. 
we are always, always in need of attaching something. For instance, even when we understand machines, when we talk about animals, when we talk about planet, when we talk about cosmos, we personify it in order to understand it. So in some, yes, we need context to understand numbers because numbers are abstract. But it, it also seems as though, and, and at the beginning of the show, I, I cited uh, Mark Twain citing Disraeli, uh, which is some, was something Disraeli probably never said, but that there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. Um, but there is a <laughs> sense in which if I want to mislead you and I know how to do, I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, I think it was in the 1980s here in the U.S., maybe early 1990s, there was this t- statistic that got flung around constantly, and it was that a woman over 40 who isn't married yet has a greater chance of being killed by a terrorist than of getting married. Now, this is, was a completely untrue statistic. It got repeated so often, though, because it had a kind of emotional resonance or kicked some kind of visceral tripwire, right? If I want to lie to you, I can reinforce my lie with something that sounds statistical. Of course, that's how we make money as statisticians. <laughs> Give me your data or tell me what you want the data to say. I beat it long enough so that it would confess. Um, it, the problem comes from this. You need to specify a reference, which we call a base rate. If you don't specify that base rate and just throw out numbers, you can talk about this is 100% more than that without saying what the original number was. Maybe the original number was completely negligible. And 100% increase doesn't really mean anything still. So with the statistics, because it's all about ratios, roughly what related to what, you always need to specify benchmark. And the easy way to lie with that, or rather get what you want out of the numbers, is to fib on what the reference is, what the benchmark is. I was earlier thinking about, so what does it mean that Elon Musk just made the highest loss possible in the history of losses that we know? And the number was too big that I couldn't make sense of it. So I, I started thinking about it in terms of, oh, this is the equivalent of a few average countries' GDP, right? Um, but that is, is a good reference point for me to put it in place. For a child, that would be a different thing. Um, for a group in Amazon that Elizabeth was talking about, that would be something. E- every time we need something in order to understand the number as a reference point that is tangible for us. Right. Actually, I heard uh, Scott Galloway, who's a business professor at NYU and a lot of other things as well. He did the same thing. But what he did was uh, he uh, took the, the Elon Musk Twitter number, the amount of money that, that, that Musk had paid, and he talked about how many sports franchises you would buy before you used that up. And it was like all the premier soccer teams plus four NBA teams plus the New York Yankees or whatever it was. And then he said, and now that he spent all that money, he could go to the equivalent of any of their stadiums. And on the big Jumbotron scoreboard, it would just say, you suck. Um, that, <laughs> there you go. That Musk had paid all this money to have people hate on him in, you know, in his own environment. And I thought sort of tying all that together, you know, is a nifty bit uh, of statistics. But Elizabeth, there's, you know, another thing that we're sort of dancing around here is the idea of deaths. 
And, and deaths are hard anyway. We're, we, we don't like to think about death at all. We don't like to think about our own death. Uh, and yet we've tried to understand COVID uh, in, in lots of different ways. In April of 2020, uh, uh, there were a lot of articles pointing that out that even th- in three months into the pandemic, more lives had been lost to the coronavirus than the 58,220 Americans who died over nearly two decades in Vietnam. Um, and so, Elizabeth, maybe you could say a little bit about that. I mean, I'm also wondering how pervasive, how persistent this is. I mean, is, is this just an indelible human tendency to sort of say it's like this in this way? Yeah, I mean, just to remark on on that strategy specifically, I think it's actually a very adaptive strategy to help make sense of something very abstract by making it more concrete and using uh, a strategy like a metaphor or an analogy that, you know, this many trillion dollars is is sort of like the GDP of these countries. I think that's actually a, a very clever strategy that we can use to help make sense of these numbers um, in when they are really important for us to understand. As I mentioned before, um, you know, whether it's however many quadrillion ants there are, um, it, it's a very different sort of the stakes are different than when you're talking about something like a budget deficit or uh, other kinds of, of really important numbers to be grappling with. Um, and when it comes to something like COVID deaths or, or, you know, any sort of public health sort of crisis, um, I think that's another area where the stakes are higher for people to really um, understand uh, the impacts of these really large numbers. And, you know, I was thinking about this with a graduate student I work with, Lindsay Hasek, in the context of COVID deaths, when we were approaching the milestone of a million uh, COVID deaths in the U.S. And, um, you know, it's really hard sometimes to to understand how many people that really is to really uh, envision the humanity there. And, um, and so using something like a metaphor, an analogy, is a really helpful strategy for making something that is so difficult to grasp um, much more sobering and and potentially change behavior and perspectives. Although, Elizabeth, I think the minute we sort of um, take our battle uh, to the field of play of numbers, there is a way in which things can depersonalize pretty quickly. And just to stay with what we're talking about right now, for example, you will see people speaking dismissively of the pandemic, say, you know, 80 or 90 percent of the deaths are people over 65. And I always think, I'm over 65. <laughs> I, I don't like the idea that that's kind of an acceptable casualty somehow, a person over 65. So, I mean, it does seem as though ultimately we have to look at the numbers, but also not lose track of what they're about, in this case, people. Totally. And I think, again, it's, it's about what, what kind of strategies can we leverage to help people grasp that? I think, you know, just saying better understand what a million really is, is not really helpful. I think, um, you know, different strategies, different news organizations have used data visualization as a really powerful strategy for making that more concrete, telling the stories of the people um, who have been impacted, um, you know, really personalizing and human humanizing it beyond just those numbers if we're really not going to be able to grasp, you know, a million people. Right. And so, Shabnam, with that idea, too, when when we are talking to children, and I know you have a daughter, um, we often mm-hmm. will go back to some of these images, right? I mean, if if yes. if X number of people join hands, they would circle around the earth, you know, X number of times or something like that. But mm-hmm. maybe talk a little bit, as Elizabeth has, uh, of the job of working this out for somebody who's a little bit y- younger, has less life experience. 
So when I wanted to um, teach my daughter about scale and measures, I would ask her, how far is that tree from you? And uh, she has just learned about the metric system or other, another system. And uh, she would give me a number. And I would say, how many of you can sleep from here to there um, to make it tangible for her? Also, with um, our uh, colleagues at the Max Planck Institute, when we are um, trying to give the concept of how good or bad a certain treatment or a medication um, or any strategy could be, as Elizabeth was saying, uh, we use uh, illustrations. And in illustrations, what really helps instead of going to percentages or, or big numbers or anything complicated or ratios, you talk about how many in 10. So for instance, if, if a million people in a country of 100 million have died, I would say, okay, um, maybe 10, uh, you know, you always talk about how many in 10 it has changed. And, and this, this will give the sense to that child because they can immediately look at their fingers and, and say, oh, okay, so 20% is two out of this 10 or, 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 or stuff like that. It, it's both visual and, and what you have available to you. Um, yeah. And you want to avoid fractions and decimal places too because children can't figure out what 1.8 of a, a human being or, or something like Actually, that. Actually, it's not, it's, it's not only children. <laughs> Most people really can't make sense of that. I, I do this uh, frequently. My, this is slightly different, but again, about numbers. So I entered a class uh, when I teach, let's say, a finance class, and I write down on, on the board one is less than two. And, and I ask my students, is this a correct statement or not? And they look at me as if uh, I'm, I'm tricking them. But then that is my opening to what does it mean for a number to be smaller or larger than another number when we are, for instance, dealing with data and you're talking about significant differences between two values. And that is when something like what the example that you were telling me, you opened the uh, section today with, that this will change or, or this is larger than that or the chances are larger than this would actually be meaningful or not. Because in the statistics, you actually can have one equal to <laughs> or, or not different from two. Uh, yeah. Right. I do a lot of reporting. I've done a lot of reporting on the show. Uh, I don't know if reporting is the right word, but um, that has involved mastering an awful lot of the bioscience and the statistics. And there are still things that I could think about them all day long, and I still wouldn't understand what is being said. For example, you'll see reputable epidemiologists say, this is maybe not exactly the right number, but people who are fully vaccinated with you know, a bivalent booster have are 18.6 times less likely to die than people yeah. who aren't. I've got to think, what does that mean exactly? In 100 people, will 19 of us not? I just I can't even figure it out. I mean, it's just not my. my yeah. but, but since we're talking about finance. Yeah, I, maybe, I, yeah go yes, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. React to that. React so to that. Maybe, yeah. maybe one, of my, one of my favorite examples uh, is when in England they uh, actually made headlines that uh, when you uh, take uh, contraceptives, that your chances of thrombosis would uh, double. 
<laughs> and uh, so women stopped taking the pills. There were so many unwanted uh, pregnancies, uh, so many abortions, so much health expenses, emotional uh, expenses, all of those things. And the fact of the matter was that from maybe, I don't remember the exact number, but one in maybe a few million, your chances would increase to two in those few millions. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if the report, instead of saying your chances would double, <laughs> would have just said from one in 60 million, you go to two in 60 million, nobody would have cared. No one would have changed anything. But this is, this is a trick that has been used by those in uh, power all the time, anyone who wants to influence anyone else uh, and knows how to do it. They know two things, how to use the numbers, that is how to frame them, and how to set your agenda in a certain order because it really matters what comes first and then next and third and so on. All right. So uh, one last thing I want to get into you before we run out of time in this segment is, and we've been kind of alluded to finance and to money. And so to set mm. this things up, this thing up, let's, uh, Kat, this is B1. Let's hear the inimitable Bernie Sanders. There is something profoundly wrong when in recent years we have seen a proliferation of millionaires and billionaires at the same time as millions of Americans are working longer hours for lower wages, and we have shamefully the highest rate of childhood poverty of any major country. So I, I'm, I'm sure both of you have things to say about this, uh, but Elizabeth, let's maybe begin here. I mean, it seems to me like millionaires and billionaires are not even remotely the same thing. You could have a million dollars and really not have enough money to retire comfortably, right? Yeah, it's true. And I think you're uh, really highlighting one of the the key areas where this is really problematic. And as you mentioned, uh, there's there's quite a difference between a million and a billion dollars or anything. Um, a millionaire is living a very different life than a billionaire, presumably. And so um, I think it's another example of how we tend to use benchmarks or category markers um, in sort of a, a casual way without sometimes really grasping what that means, that, you know, the difference between a thousand and a million is very different than the difference between a million and a billion, right? A billion is a thousand million. Um, and so it's it's uh, tricky. And I think that when you get into things like billions and trillions of dollars too, even then you, you sometimes hear those in the same sentence and it's quite different. Um, we're really talking about huge scale. And as I mentioned before, it gets compressed because we, are, we don't typically deal with numbers that large. We tend to think of them sort of, they are equally spaced if you're using a logarithmic scale. Um, and so I think that's one of the tricks that when you are dealing with, with uh, numbers and quantities that big, you sort of have to retrain your thinking in, um, in recognizing that those quantities are quite different. Um, all right. I think we actually are going to have to stop here. I could talk to both of you a lot longer. This is fascinating. Elizabeth Tumarian uh, is the director of the Brainwave Learning Center at Synapse School and an educational neuroscience researcher at Stanford University. Shabnam Musavi is a scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and a senior scientist at Sentai Lab in Italy. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to the Da Vinci of data.
All right. Uh, time to thank some people. Fortunately, there's only two people. I don't have to deal with a big number. Uh, well, I'm sure there's lots of other people that I could conceivably conceivably thank, but our technical producer is Kat Pastor. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She's the one who came up with this idea and has done such a marvelous job of bringing it all about. So, yes, we've been talking to people in Italy and uh, the University of Würzburg, but in fact— more or less right here in our own backyard, we have uh, one of the real uh, world experts, particularly on visualization of data. I want to say that when we first started talking about this show, I was thinking visualization of data is so important and also so incredibly hard to deal with in a radio format. But we absolutely are thrilled to be talking to Edward Tufte, better known as ET, uh, wrote, designed, and self-published five books on information design and data visualization, which are legendary books at this point. Uh, He also designed and built Hopkin Hill Farms, a sculpture farm in Woodbury, Connecticut, was a professor at Princeton and Yale for 32 years. And we are quite thrilled to have him with us. So welcome to our show, E.T. Hi, good. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, we can talk about visualization, which is something you're famous for and and are an expert on. But I mean, I I think another thing that you talk about is um, just the way in which, and we've been kind of dancing around it for the whole show, that you take numbers and you pin them to something, to something other than just numbers. So we're going to give a musical example of this and then have you talk about it. Kat, this is C1. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and i crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been 10,000 miles in the miles of a graveyard That, of course, is the distinguished mathematician, uh, Dr. Robert Zimmerman, uh, better known as Bob Dylan. Um, so tell us, tell us what's going on here. Why would that be relevant to the kind of work that you do, sir? These are uh, inscrutable numbers uh, of an imagist, uh, Bob Dylan. They're unknowable numbers, but they have vivid, strong meanings and emotions. As we go down into the second verse of the song, he says, I saw 10,000 talkers whose tongues were all broken. And in the third verse, heard 100 drummers whose hands were blazing, heard 10,000 whispering and nobody listening. And then it goes to uh, first person, uh, singular, heard one person starve, and then goes to first person. I heard many people laughing. And then the final verse, he's entirely in the first person. And he says, where fo- souls are forgotten and where none is the number and this incredible conclusion about well what to do about all this and he says i'll tell it and think it and speak it and breathe it and reflect from the mountain so all souls can see it then i'll stand on the ocean until i start sinking and then this beautiful last line 
and I'll know my song well before I start singing. Hmm. So what he's, what he's uh, done there is create, is use numbers to create emotion and use emotion to get us to react to numbers. Yes, and it's also for the, the sounds. So it will be uh, a dozen dead oceans. You'll have the sibilance or, or uh, six crooked highways. Uh, it's uh, if you change it to seventeen crooked highways, it, it doesn't work. Uh, so it's part of the poetic, poetic sound. There's also a kind of count countdown to it from the beginning to the personal ending. And it was when uh, I heard about your topic, it was the, the it's been lurking. It was the first thing that, that came to mind. <laughs> Well, the second time that you think, just because our time is limited, the second thing that came to your mind, I think, was Galileo. Uh, give us a sense of how he um, takes numbers and, and ideas of distance and does something with them. In 1610, he built his own, he built his own uh, telescope, and uh, he could see maybe uh, 20 stars without the telescope, and he could see hundreds and hundreds with the telescope. And... This was the first view of the uh, other of the unviewable stars or the unseen stars. And there are, of course, billions and billions of stars. But this kicked back to from the stars and the view to humans. Before 1610, astronomy had largely been verbal gymnastics, speculation, philosophizing, dispute. And in contrast, the images of all these stars are direct, visible, decisive testimony of nature herself. And so it left guys sitting around in armchairs disputing and parsing Aristotle, and now became the way you decided things was visible certainty. And that is a grand forever thing in human thinking, is that we have visible certainty we we get evidence by by looking at it and the whole human cognitive style got changed by by his seeing and by all those stars that were now revealed um, out, out there so before we run out of time here, you and I are big fans, both big fans of another ET. That's Eric Topol. Uh, he's been on the show talking about the pandemic. And, and he's somebody who on Twitter makes a lot of use of charts. And charts can be good. Charts can be bad. Charts can be, as you call it, chart junk. Uh, but what's so good about what he does? He uh, is very, very smart to start with. That mm -hmm. helps. Yep. And... His, his evidence all comes from current first-rate scientific publications like Science, Nature, uh, Journal of American Medical Association, The Lancet. And he simply cuts and pastes. He doesn't design anything. He doesn't have little cute things going on. He, he cuts and pastes. And uh, he has 630 or 670,000 viewers that's a lot that's unscrutable inscrutable number <laughs> and it um he will sometimes put three or four out a day he is uh, a very careful scientist judge and he doesn't uh, uh doesn't panic but he starts suggesting like this this new mutation might 
cause trouble, and we'll have to see next week's evidence that comes in. And so the sources of evidence are first rate. And he puts puts some right up on Twitter, and he doesn't he gets by copyright uh, considerations because the scientific journals are so thrilled that Eric Topol put them on Twitter with 670,000 viewers. Right. So we're almost out of time here. And I do want to just say that, and this gets to chart junk too, that I could also put up charts that are kind of misleading. I could put up a chart that I just saw a bar graph uh, from a reputable source that pointing out that every three months, the percentage uh, of COVID deaths that are in vaccinated people keeps growing. Now, if you put that chart up, it's going to be very misleading. And one of the reasons that that's happening is if 79% of the population has had at least one or two doses of vaccine, they're, they're going to be, and their, their representation among the dead is going to grow. But if you just put the bar graph up there, you could draw all kinds of wrong conclusions. Um, I, uh, early on, went after all that, and I got a lot, a lot of reforms, particularly in uh, in newspapers and and so on um but i come from things now on the other side i look at the best visualizations <laughs> around and celebrate them and said this is what we should should do and uh i think there are the uh we probably can't reform uh people who lie with statistics it's easy to lie with statistics but we should remember it's easier to lie without them. <laughs> That's a great place to end. Edward Tufte wrote and designed and published five books on information design and data visualization. He is known as the Da Vinci of data. Uh, he was a professor at Princeton and Yale for 32 years and he lives right not too far from here. So that's lucky to have him. Uh, lucky, to have, lucky to have Lily Tyson to conceive and execute this show as well. Thanks to Cat Pastor. And we'll be back tomorrow with another show. Lately, all I can think about is how bad I want to go out in style. And it's too much.